Hi, I'm Christine Dorr, owner of Neococo. And I'm Tammy Tian, owner of Spice Home. And we are co-owners of Kitchen 519, our shared-use commercial kitchen in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Lettuce Wrap, a podcast about food, food business, and the people who work in the industry. Today we have Elise Zan of Coco Tutti Chocolates. Hi, Elise. Hey. Hi, Elise. <laughs> How you guys doing? We're good. Thank you for coming in today. Oh, it's fun. Coco Tutti Chocolates. Okay, I stole this from your website. A passionate marriage of art and flavor. Yeah. Tell us about that. People talk about edible artwork, but this truly is. Things are hand-painted with cocoa butter. They're airbrushed. I make my own transfer sheets. So when you look at it, it's visually just stunning, especially when you put all the chocolates together. So I'm even having some fantasies of making mosaics out of the chocolates because there are some little ones that are like little tiles, and I can make these mosaics out of them. And they're so cute. Them. Oh, they're God, so you know, tiny. They're really, and they're they're got so much flavor in them. So yeah, and I've always loved art. So when I was five years old, my mother gave me a bed. And the first thing I did was take out my red crayon and draw all over the white bed that stayed there for years because we couldn't get it off. So that was my first entree into art. And I've never really recovered from it. So one of the fun things that I do is is doing all of this artwork, doing all the airbrushing. And I do molded chocolates, which means that the artwork occurs in the mold generally before I put the chocolate in. So I do the airbrushing in the art. So when you turn it out is when you actually see what it looks like. So it's like Christmas every day that I turn it out because they, they're stunning. They're shiny. They're gorgeous. Um, they do you just always lo- know what you're going to see? Do you always no, know it's always it fun. Like? I mean, I have a general sense. So it's like the raspberry are always going to look sort of raspberry. They're going to have white dots and they're going to have one coat of, of a color that I create. And then there's a backing coat to brighten it up. So, so wait... You call yourself you call yourself an artist. Uh, yeah, uh, artist designer. Here, yeah, yeah. But I, when I first met you, one of the first things I remember about you is that you had architectural background. That's true. I did own an architecture firm for a long time. How did that come about? Oh, that was that was back in the day when women-owned businesses were just starting out and they were needed in public works. And so all the work that I had done was actually fire stations, police stations, schools, housing, big public projects. And I started out on the admin end. And then later I started taking architectural classes and I always had licensed architects working with me and, and such. That's how I met my husband. And then 2008 came and and went and so did my firm. Basically about 2010 is, you know, when it, it had its fine little groans and grumps. Two out of my three clients went bankrupt. So at that point, I had started with chocolate at the state fair in 2004. And the first thing that I did was I went and I entered a competition and I I took like an honorary thing and I was hooked. So I kept um, making chocolate. So when my business went under in 2010, was the same year that I took three awards at the State Fair. There were three competitions and I took two best of shows out of the three. And my husband goes, you know, you really like doing this as compared to like all the problems in the other business. So I brought all the business background with me to this current business, but I started doing the chocolate. I went to the underground. Um, some people have heard of the San Francisco underground and I was at the fourth one. So wait, when did you start then? I when really you, when started. You consider- I, my official date is like May, 2010. 
So that was the underground. And then I immediately went to another show. So a lot of my work started with all of this, um, people coming to a show, seeing me, inviting me to another show or letting me know that there was another show available or there was a competition or there was a this or that. So I started at the underground on in 2010. And then I went full-time chocolate in 2012. Um, full-time chocolate sort of an interesting phrase because it meant that I was in a commissary. So the full-time was being in the commissary that a lot of people, you guys started, you started in the commissary, didn't you, Christine? Yes. And did you also, yeah. Tammy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of your part-time in a kitchen and then your full-time outside of the kitchen, getting everything either prepped for it or doing the business side of it or whatever. So 2012, I was in a commissary. I did, I worked in one commissary for just a couple of weeks. And then I worked in another one for, I think, about six years in South San Francisco. And actually, I stayed in the commissary and the ownership changed. And then the owner grew, the second owner grew so big that they let everybody out. <laughs> they basically told us, time to go. And so I went to another commissary and I was there in San Francisco. And then I found my own kitchen. With um, the South San Francisco place and you got moved out of there, you knew the San Francisco one was just something until you built out your kitchen or, or you didn't know in your head that you're going to move to a commissary. I didn't know I was going to move into my own kitchen. Right. Um, I moved in there because I had to get out of the other one. Was that um, a goal at, at the whole time? Yeah. When you started, you're like, someday I'm going to have my own kitchen. I'll start like this, but eventually I'll have my own place. I, I think most people are into it after a few years. Either they get out of it or they decide they're going to have their own kitchen. My husband kept calling people and saying I was a caterer. And that was the big mistake because I have a cold kitchen. I'm a chocolatier and it's not a smelly kitchen. I'm not frying anything in fat. I'm not roasting things and all the rest of that. And I was actually told by the people at the place that I'm at that if I was a caterer, I never would have been allowed. But because I'm a chocolatier and it's a cold kitchen, that was the only reason they let me in. Did you actually have a business plan when you first started your business? I still don't have a business plan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, you take any kind of business class, and of course, they're going to say, you must have a business plan. Yeah. Many yeah. people have just the vision. Yeah. But you have yeah. a vision. I mean, and you oh, I always, do. Yeah. you have that, like your one year, your five year, your 10 year in your head, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think part of it is there's so many different ways to do a business plan. And I... I finally found one that I really liked, which is a real short-term business plan. It's like a three-year. And then my computer died and the business plan went with it. <laughs> so it's sort of like, well, I still have a business plan. Um, yeah, basically in my head, I know where I want to go. I know in some ways, more importantly, what I don't want to do. So for me, I don't want to have like a whole series of shops. I really am not interested in that kind of retail. I don't want to be seized candy and have, you know, millions of shops everywhere. I would rather do wholesale. I'd rather do corporate. I'd rather have one person that buys a boatload of chocolate that I have one contact for rather than even though I could get that incremental amount between right. wholesale and retail, yep. it's just not worth it for me. In my old business at one point, I think I had six or eight offices and they were all off site and keeping track of People doing what you wanted and all the rest of that stuff was really a frustration. So I'd rather have a big factory with a lot of people that are there and then have somebody else have the problems versus me having, you know, some sort of central location and then shipping chocolate out and the rest of it. So 
So something that we're we're obviously interested in since we also have a shared use commercial kitchen is what what did it take for you to open the your new kitchen? Um I'm I'm going to sort of back up a little bit about why I didn't want to continue in a shared kitchen and then that sort of helped move me into a new kitchen. So the kitchen I had in South City was working out fine for quite a while. So I had uh, a metro rack, which is one of those metal looking racks you can get over at Costco. And then I had a metro rack in the refrigerator. And then I had undershelf space. So I had enough so that I didn't need to load in and load out all the time. So I didn't need to load in every ingredient. And I know there's other kitchens where you start getting charged by the hour from the moment literally you set your foot in and you have to load everything in until the moment that you've taken absolutely everything away. And I just simply didn't want to have to load in, load out. So I had a monthly. I paid by the month instead of the hour. And I started originally by the hour, but I realized I needed so much time that in order to grow business that that just simply didn't work. And then what started happening was that the owner of the kitchen in South San Francisco needed to move me into the later hours of the afternoon. So I started working on the weekends and the problem is one of the other tenants needed to work during the weekend. And she was making a product that required the kitchen to be higher, heated up to about 90 degrees, which is very difficult to make chocolate in. And it was just sort of an ongoing battle. I need cold, she needs hot, the rest of that stuff. So what was happening in the kitchen was my time frame started getting crunched into these smaller portions and into times that were difficult to work because some of the other people that were around needed to have other equipment that would make it difficult for me to work. When I moved from South San Francisco to San Francisco, I agreed that I would take an afternoon shift. So I was monthly at $1,500 a month. If I moved it back four hours, it was $2,500 a month. So I could have done it, but it was an extra $1,000. I would go in at three in the morning to wash my molds. It was sort of interesting to go in at three o'clock in the morning and see your breath every time that you (laughs) talk to somebody. And then they would light up the fires like the fires of hell because they would be like flaming three and four feet up into the air because they were trying to get everything ready for breakfast. I had to be out of there officially by 5.30 in the morning, which meant that I wasn't always done. And so I would be in a literally a 40 degree kitchen. I could leave everything out because it's not going to get any warmer. So you're freezing when you're working. And then I would go back in at two, chocolate would be ready at five, but I wouldn't get home until 11. My husband left for work at four in the morning and then we would sort of see each other like, hey, goodbye. And then I would work on weekends. That's not life. It isn't a life. And and so it, it kind of kept pushing me into a place where I'm going to have for myself. And then ironically, what happened was a couple of years ago over Christmas, my van gave out. So we were getting a new van for me. And while we're waiting for all the paperwork to work out, I got on Craigslist because I was so frustrated with being, you know, like in this situation. And I found a spot in Brisbane and it said small office. And, you know, but it was, it's officially 1,675 square foot and it was going to be 2,500 a month. And it's like, well, shoot, if I'm in San Francisco at 1,500 and I've got between two in the afternoon to like four in the morning, we'll figure out a way to get that extra $1,000 a month so I can be there by myself. But what makes you say, it says office space. What makes you go, oh, kitchen? (laughs) Why not? It's hard to convert, isn't it? No. No? It just depends on where the water is. Okay. So, and see, therein lies 
the architectural experience. Ah, ha, ha. And, <laughs> Here we come full and, circle. Yeah, there we go. And knowing the people who can do this, you know, like on weekends and who don't mind getting paid cash and, you know, like how you can do all these things. So um, our costs were considerably less. When you say cash. It's cash. Yeah, you mean. It was, it was all um, permitted. Okay, that's what I was going. Yeah, I didn't know. No, but you also need to know what permit you're getting. Yeah. I got a plumbing permit because you I knew mean, you know about these things. Yeah, because yeah. I knew that I didn't need to do anything other than plumbing. So you submitted your plans to the planning department, but you submitted for a plumbing permit, right? And you have to submit to the county health department. So first thing you do is you submit to county health, and then generally the city will overlook it as well. So I'm in the city of Brisbane. In addition to that, they send it to North County Fire to take a look at the fire. And then I don't think Handicap looked at it because, again, knowing what the regs are, we were doing such a minimal that it fell into the grandfather. Mm -hmm. So I didn't need to make Handicap changes. But what we did do is we did do as much as we could. So I do have a ramp that I move in place whenever there's a public event. So so it is handicap accessible. Our bathroom, to what extent that there is, is handicap accessible. So by knowing the system, then we were able to handle a lot of it on our own. That's because, valuable information. Yeah, you're, you're really saving to know what it is. a lot of money by knowing these things. I did, we haven't counted up the numbers because my computer died and I haven't done my taxes yet, <laughs> but essentially on a thumbnail basis, I think I did a $60,000 kitchen for 14. Oh my God. Cash. We need a lease. Remember, oh, <laughs> how much do you charge for consulting? <laughs> do you, um, I mean, you didn't have any issues with your flooring, alcoving, any of that kind of stuff? I changed it. Okay. We we wanted a polished um, concrete. It's not permitted. Mm -hmm. So basically, when I went in, is I I replaced it with all ceramic floor. It's beautiful, um, and I got it cheap. And the only so here's the thing, I went to to Home Depot and Lowe's, and it was like, oh, I need ceramic flooring. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find enough of it at the time. I thought I needed eighty three boxes. So I went to. Home Depot Pro, and they had a sale on tile, and I think it was like 83 cents a square foot. So I laid all this tile, and when you'll see it, it it's a lot of tile. I didn't, I've never laid a tile floor before. So we, we pulled up the old carpet. We rented a, a kind of a scoring machine over at Home Depot Pro, did the whole floor. My husband did that because literally, I it was like a cartoon. You know, like he he handed it to me. I almost went flying into the wall. The thing was <laughs> no. so powerful. I'm oh, like, no. no, you've got the the body shape and weight to do this. You do it. And then um, I I did all the thin set and I laid it down, and so I laid the whole floor. So again, I paid. I don't know, a couple of hundred, well, it was more than a couple hundred bucks. I mean, it was like 800 or 900 bucks for the floor, just in terms of the materials. But you did it yourself. Yeah. So that was like a couple thousand dollars in savings. But so here's the story. So they drop three pallets on our back doorstep. This tile, when I moved it, I moved 
over 6,000 pounds by hand in three hours because it was going to start raining. So I moved all that by hand. I had a cart that had a broken wheel. So I put it on the cart with a broken wheel and I I moved it like 15 feet and then I put it all down. I was so sore the next day. I was like, I'm not going in to work. So, <laughs> Finally, something that slows yeah, you really, down. Like, oh my God. With the, it, the tile. Oh man, you have no idea until you've laid, you know, like 40 pieces of tile, how tiring it can be because oh, <laughs> they're really tiring. But, you know, you do it. It's like, I don't have the money. I don't have 60 grand or whatever it would have been to have somebody do all this. Wait, okay. So so you put in all this work into this, uh, into your kitchen. Yeah. How long is your lease? It's five years. I'm hoping to move out in three years and sell the kitchen. Okay. I'm hoping to move to a bigger spot and then sell the kitchen. And you're Absolutely. hoping to redo this again? And you're- it just depends on where we go next. But the idea is it's going to be bigger. So This is an investment then. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm maximizing my investment right. by putting in the labor. And it was over summer. So it wasn't like I was losing time. Yeah, so too. it was your slower period. Yeah. So what do you expect to sell? You know, I'm not sure because it's going to be market rate at that point. But I know I can sell it for less than most people. And still make money and still make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've already had use of that. You know, maybe I won't move until five. Maybe I'll extend it out. The way that it's set up is sort of shotgun. It's perfect because the landlord's fine with me moving anything. The only condition that they have is if I move out and can't get a food person in, that whatever we do can be removed easily. So this uh, office, uh, where your kitchen is, is it a big office complex or? It's actually, a, it's, it's an industrial park and it's a condo. So what they did about 25 years ago, which was very popular, which was you would buy your unit. And so that's what these, these people did. So when they bought it, it was basically four walls and a bathroom. So anything that's in there is a non-bearing wall. So I can move every every item and knowing it, that it's non-bearing. So one of the things that I was talking to the people who repair your refrigerator, I started talking to him about having a walk-in put in because there's a back area that's got a little room that I don't know why they developed it, but um, we could actually knock the room out and put a walk-in and then... In the production area, there's straight shot. So I could actually put a continuous tempering machine, a, a line to do the, the dipping, and a cooling tunnel. And it can go from the front of the kitchen to the back. Yep. And at the very end of it, you can go into the walk-in. Right. And the walk-in will have two doors, one that you can walk in from the production area and one that you can walk in to the back door, which you can now take pallets. Look at you. So planning. Well, when I saw it, it's like, this is what we'll do with it. So I think, you know, you're talking about business plan kind of circling around a little bit. Is a lot of times when I'm doing something, I, I'm looking at the end game. And so if it was something that was kind of a short round facility, it'd be like, well, this one's going to be a little bit more difficult. What can I make out of it? And maybe walk away from it. But the moment I saw how long it was, I was even telling the landlord, I said, this is perfect. She goes, not many people say that. And I'm like, no, this is what I can do. This is what I want to do. Right. So speaking of uh, Endgame, mm-hmm. uh, do you have an exit strategy? You seem like somebody who does. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't, but 
Yeah. Sell the business. Sell the business. My my moving target has always been seven years, but I said that seven years ago. So (laughs) it is a bit of a moving target. Um, But basically, my understanding is you can sell the business at whatever you're selling. So for instance, if if my gross is two million, I can sell it for two million and then I can sell Goodwill and I can sell some other things on top of it. So my goal is like a million to two million net depending upon how old my husband and I are, because there's an age difference between the two of us, him being older. Uh, so the objective is that's our basically our retirement. Wow. Yeah. So the objective is to, and that's the same thing with the kitchen, is the objective is to sell it. I'm not sure what I'll get for it at this point. There is also the possibility of selling your business with the kitchen too, right? Because mm. you you are at that. I don't see how anybody could make $2 million worth of product in that kitchen. Okay. So that- and that's the only reason. Okay. Um, if I could figure out a way, I would do it, which would mean that the continuous tempering machine and the line and the cooling tunnel and everything would go with it. But I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, you buy a Selmy, which is what the the Mercedes Benz of yes. <laughs> continuous tempering machines, and you start at the low end. And even the low end is, you know, that's I got pricing on it. And now they're they're like, hey, you want to buy it yet? And I'm like, no, <laughs> and not for fifteen thousand for the starter kit. It goes up to about a half million by the time you get to to what some people would even consider like not really doing production because they've got like thousand pound tanks and all the rest oh, of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Going back to your background again, then you weren't even an architect when you were right. in an architecture firm. So right. did you go to college? Uh, there's a legal um, a legal methodology, whereas if you're doing actual architecture, you are co-signed with a licensed architect and you provide their insurance, which is what we did. So whenever we had the, there's things that are called stamps. So whenever a document had to be stamped by a licensed architect, then that person had to co-sign the contract with me. So they got to do the fun and I got to do all the yes, paperwork. But, yeah, that paperwork, the yeah. HR, the marketing, the but whole thing. Your training was always. I mean, so did you? Did you do any classes in business administration? Or um, that was like twenty five or thirty years ago. Because I am sixty, so I am old, and I'm okay with that. What? So anyway, chocolate keeps us young. It does. <laughs> when you're standing over a bowl of caramel the way that I do, it just you know it radiates your skin looks gorgeous (laughs) so yeah so anyway i did take a few business courses but a lot of it's just learning um it's sort of like chocolate i never took a course in it i never went to culinary school and in your art too right it's just natural yeah ability yeah i i have a you know like a pinterest feed like everybody else and i collect all these random things that i call color and form and it's just it could be anything anything that strikes my interest i'll usually have like three or four pictures of it it could be anything from like, you know, somebody else's kind of design concepts, but mostly it's out of nature, you know, um, things that are like under the sea, things that are vibrant and, you know, beautiful. And it's not even that I copy anything, but it just like gives me ideas. It's your vision so, board. Basically. Yeah, basically. That's a great way of putting it. I like yeah. that. So if somebody came to you and said, um, oh, I want to be a chocolatier too. Um, should I go to school or what should I do? How do I become a chocolatier? What would you tell them? I I would talk to them about kind of sense of what their patience level is. Uh, Because if you're going to do it my way, you got to accept and really be comfortable with failure. Because my best lessons are my failure lessons and figuring out what happens. People who are not comfortable with that really should go to school. 
because they'll have somebody who's already gone through the failure and given them an idea of how to to proceed. For me, it was just even learning how to temper um, because I tried doing the table tempering on the marble, and it's like that's cute if you're doing a couple of ounces. I know, I know totally. <laughs> like what? <laughs> so, or no, if you're in the Bake Off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but not, uh, not for production. No. no. So, and I've had people who've come to work with me, and they're they've come from chocolate classes, you know, done culinary schools, and they're I think they're they had a like a month or something that they did. And it just simply doesn't give you all that much of a background other than, you know, you've either under tempered or over tempered, um, you know, and other than that, you start from the beginning with them. But for people who really want to get into it fast and want to be somebody's assistant and learn all that, go to culinary school, learn some of the basics, you know, come on over. Don't expect to get paid 20 or 25 bucks an hour plus benefits. Cause I've had people say that and <laughs> start laughing. <Right. laughs> it's like, no. And then people who, you know, want to take it as sort of like a hobby that maybe I can grow into a business, then, you know, do it on your own. Um, just go to chocolate places, see what people do, talk to people. Some people will talk back. Some people will not, you know, it's just up to you. I guess let's get down to basics. What does Coco Tutti mean? So you've heard Tutti Fruity, mm-hmm. everything fruit, Coco Tutti, everything chocolate. Oh. Yeah, and it's catchy. So a lot of people remember it. When I started out, I was doing things like bakery and I was doing chocolates and all the rest of it. And every once in a while, somebody still comes back to me for bakery. There's this one guy who had my caramel turtle brownies like two or three years ago. And he contacted me at Christmas, you know, the time when nobody's ever busy (laughs) and said, Hey, I'd like to buy some brownies. And I'm like, you really have to wait. So every four to six weeks, it comes back for, you know, another big batch of brownies. Oh, and And you're willing to do that too. Yeah. If I've got the time, I'm happy to do it. But, you know, we're coming to a point where that's not going to necessarily be uh, that I'll be able to do it. I'll just have to to do chocolate instead, which is really where I'm going with it anyway. But you used to make uh, jam. I'm sorry. Do you still, oh, still do still that? Jam. Okay, you still do yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, the jam goes into the chocolates. Oh. So. And then you sell it also. I stopped yeah. selling last year. Oh, okay. Yeah, and what I was finding is that my jam is very particular to what I need. So it's low sugar. And I don't care if anybody uses this recipe. It's like three quarters fruit. It's about a quarter sugar. And I think by percentage, it came out to, I'd have to look at the recipe, but between two and 4% pectin, and then just you know a minimal amount of lemon juice. So it's very tart and it's very thick. And the raspberry is sieved two or three times. I forget it. It's been last summer is when I last made it. So when I figure the cost for a jar of raspberry, the cost was $9.43, including the jar. So in order for me to sell it, it means it needs to go to $20. And in order for them to sell it, it needs to go to 40. So- Oh, you would try to sell that wholesale? Well, a couple of people asked me to, you know, sell it wholesale. And so I was just selling it at different events and whatever. And sometimes I'll still sell like tryouts, like mango or, you know, something else that I'm trying out and I'll have extra jam. And that kind of jam is so intense that you can put it on bread. You can put it. I have people who go on diets and they want a jar of it 
because they need such a minimal amount that they can have a treat at the end of dinner by having a piece of toast and jam. Do you do anything else? I mean, the chocolates are obviously the main part of your business. Mm-hmm. And you used to sell the jam. And even before that, you've had bakery items. Yeah. Do you still do anything else except for the guy who comes in for the brownies? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm always exper- experimenting with things. So right now, I'm. It, it is related to chocolate generally. So I do nut butters. The nut butters go into the chocolates. I make different toffees. I've got a Szechuan pepper toffee that's uh, coated with the Opalese white chocolate from Valrona and then cashew. Um, I do a popcorn. Now, I should explain why I'm doing some of these things. So two years ago, I decided that I should do gift baskets. I don't know what got in my head. You know, it must have just been I saw somebody doing something and it looked really cool. And it's like, well, hey, I can do that. I can bring out a new product for sure, Christmas. Sure. So yeah, I decided in July, I was not going to do one gift basket. I was going to do four flavors and not just four flavors, three sizes. And my brother was going to create gift boards for some of them and all the rest of this stuff. So and and now I'm branding everything. So now I need bark and I need toffee and I need popcorn because everybody puts popcorn in. And so I've got a smoked paprika popcorn that's got dried cranberries, chocolates, and candy pecans. And then I've got um, an almond, roasted almond toffee. So the almonds are in the toffee and then there's a coat of chocolate on it. And then there's some on the outside. But you start with like, uh, I'm going to make gift baskets. And that's where it starts. And then you're like, okay, I need to put something in the gift bag. Exactly. So I'm going to start making these other products. Right. Does it go the other way too? Like I found this really great spice or something or other, and I want to make something with that. Yep. And that's one reason I want to talk to Tammy too, is about those spices. So actually, so that brings up like what inspires you? Is it typically the ingredients or is it a person or is it a cuisine or, you know, some could be anything. Um, A little girl was at an event this was years ago, and I saw her and I immediately thought of my goddaughter, and a recipe popped in my head. And it was a ginger caramel with peanuts and Thai chili. And I've been selling it ever since. It could be a picture. So when I, I came to try chocolate with, with you guys, I saw a picture and it, it looks like it's maybe a candied orange dipped in chocolate. Can't quite tell. Didn't bother to look at the description to see if it said orange on it or not. <laughs> I'd like to infuse the orange peel when it's being candied with different spices, not so much that it's overbearing so that it it cancels out the orange, but not so much that the orange is so prevalent that, you know, like, what's the point? And I'll go through a whole series of experiments. One of my most notorious experiments had 62 items in it, and it was tea. I was checking out how to do some tea infusions, and I laid it out with, um, I think there was like four or five different teas, different chocolates, different percentages of, of milk versus cream versus butter, and I laid it all in a grid. And I had three people over and I'm like, you want to try some chocolate? Oh yeah, sure. And we got like a third of the way through and they're like, we're done. And I'm like, no, you're not. We still have another 40 to go. (laughs) (gasps) Oh my God. Those might be good friends. uh, Yeah. Well, they they kind (laughs) of made their way through it. And usually what I'll do is a process of elimination. It's like, okay, that would not so much like this stands out, although it occasionally happens, but it's like, I don't like this and I'll push that aside. So yes, when I'm experimenting, all sorts of things happen. I mean, it can be a a grid where I'm working backwards. It could be starting with a recipe that um, sometimes other people's recipes kind of give me a charge. It's like, oh, you know, somebody did something with with an ingredient or whatever. And that sounds intriguing. Maybe I should try this, but I want to do it this way instead. You know, I 
I like being more on the fringe. Have you ever come up with a recipe and you knew this is it? I mean, you didn't have to test it out. You just like in your head go. That was that ginger. Yeah, the ginger with the peanuts and the Thai chili. Okay. Yeah. And have you come up with a recipe and you were like, this is horrific. Why? Oh, how did yeah. this, what happened? Yeah, I've tried a pear and port and it just never works. Pear and oh. port. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Conceptually, yeah. it seems like that would work. Yeah. yeah and I like the way it, it's, it, you know, you say it, pear and port. Yeah. It just sounds like fun. So, you know, sometimes it's as silly as that. Sometimes I'll see a color and I'll be like, ah. I'll try that. That sound, That's a color, beautiful color combination. What would be in something that had that color combination on top? You know, it can come from anywhere. You know, and I develop basically between 20 and 30 recipes a year. So virtually every month I'm working on different recipes. And I've got a whole packet of recipes that have never turned out. And one day I, like, I go back to them and I'm like, you know, now that I've learned something over the past three or four or six years, maybe I can go back to that and see what I can find. And sometimes I look at them and I go, nope, it's not going to work. <laughs> so do you have like a, a master diary or something? Or Oh, it's put a it menu. You know, it's a book. It's oh. actually a three ring binder. Oh. And I write all my recipes down in it. And then as I update them, then they just go on top of it. So they're in those sleeves. So I can go back and I can see, you know, what did I try and where did I change this? And where did I change that? So there's some of my um, my booze recipes, and I, it's in partially in caramel and partially in ganache. And I recently switched the proportions, so I had it one way, and now I'm adding more ganache, um, just because it's so liquidy, it will tend to spurt if it goes in airmail, and so the pressure oh. will allow that that if there's any possible little space that's a little weaker when it goes up and down it splats so by changing the proportion How of the ganache because people <laughs> sent me pictures oh. oh yeah and it's like splat <laughs> so <laughs> you knew I, right away what what had happened oh yeah absolutely okay. so so there's something so i've got a big order coming up and i'm not sure if this guy's going to choose ground or if they're going to choose like a three-day delivery or two-day well ground i can send anything but two-day and three-day i can't send anything that might splat you can't you know? adjust the recipe for that some of them you can't yeah, yeah the liquid vanilla caramel is the way that it is right. so but you know a, a chewy caramel that's no problem right well, how about business-wise is there anything that hasn't worked out business-wise oh yeah i'm sure there's like probably every week something that doesn't exactly work out <laughs> and it's like oh gosh what didn't happen today um i think a lot of times it's, in a sense, trusting clients so who don't pay you. <laughs> and, oh. and so like there's like one guy, I'm going to be going up to Portland soon, and I'm going to make a side trip to Seattle, which is a three-hour additional drive, so I can sue him in small claims court and then come back down that day and go to my event the next day. Wow, you really and want to like, talk about this? <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> okay. He's going to find out sooner or later. So, so, I mean, he, okay, this is really interesting, right? Because... For any business person going in there, they're old, let's say, you know, 7,500, I think it's, what's small claims court? How much can you sue? Oh, I don't remember. Well, but I mean, yeah. yeah, this is 750 bucks, so it's not that much. Okay. It's more but, to make a point yeah, than anything. So it's, let's say it's $1,000, right? Yeah. I mean, at what point did you feel that you have to do the small claims? I mean, how many times have you given him notice before? Oh my God. It's <laughs> been five, six, seven times. And then, then they said they were going bankrupt. And 
you know, now they're not going bankrupt because at least there's some relief through the court system on bankruptcy. But, you know, this this guy, I called his attorney three times. His attorney has never responded back. They've never responded back to emails or any of that. So in terms of business and, you know, and things, I'm actually very grateful for my website because my website automatically takes the money right off the bat. So it's like, I don't even have to deal with it. It takes, the, it's sort of like where, well, wholesale rather, um, you know, it takes the money. Oh, like, yahoo, <laughs> you put it in my bank then the next day or two or three days later or whatever. I don't have to deal with the money side of it. Mm-hmm. So the money part is, you know, nothing I'm wild about. And that's the part where I tend to fail most is like, oh yeah, I'll send it to you and you pay. I have a whole problem with a bunch of small wineries and because it's a small amount, I never get the check. So now I'm like, hey, as soon as I get receipt that you paid me, I will ship. And they're like, oh, well, we'll pay you. And I'm like, yeah, you will. (laughs) That's easy. Yes, that's a great way to do it, right? Like, so instead, I mean, it's you got to pay in advance, basically, right? Because if they ordered off your website, they're paying in advance. They're not walking out of Macy's with that nice outfit and then saying, I'll pay you in a week. You know, everybody takes. So it's not different. It's just people, I think, look at small business like they can get away with more. Mm-hmm. I had a woman at an event once who said, oh, I want to buy this big box of chocolate. And I'm like, great. So we take credit cards and cash. And they're like, oh, no, I'll send you a check. And I'm like, oh, no, you're not getting the box. And she was really insulted. And I'm like, I can't help it. This is my livelihood, not yours. Do you, you have somebody to help you with these no, no, I'm a one person shop. No. Yeah, so I do it all. So why um, did you ever want a partner or? Uh, you know, I've had business partners in the past and you really have to be on the same wavelength. And you also have to have the same tolerance or similar tolerance for um, for failure, uh, for um, things that, you know, could be huge successes and, you know, like growth spurts and things like that, um, how you approach people, even if it's not exactly the same way, I think that at least you have to be compatible with it um, so that one person isn't totally wigging out with, you know, a decision made by the other person. Um, my husband, in some ways, can be a quasi-business partner. He'll He'll come up with some ideas and I might reject them and go back to him. And then say, you know, that's a pretty good idea. So after X amount of years of marriage, I've I've learned to kind of shut my mouth at least for a moment or two and think, think through of, what I'm saying. He's your sounding board, at least yeah. without a partner, exactly. a true partner. Exactly. Yeah. Someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you bounce ideas off uh, maybe a network of friends or, you know? Sometimes. You, you know, um, one thing that I just did, so I'll just talk about the chocolate for a minute, is uh, I decided to do Easter chocolate. So again, one of my bright ideas, hey, I'll do Easter chocolate. So I put a note at the bottom of one of my emails and said, congratulations, you made it down to the bottom of the page and I need taste testers. So I had, I think, 12 or 13 people respond. And then I sent them a bunch of chocolate. And I said, in this one piece, I I don't really like it. And tell me what you would do to change it. So I do reach out to people for things like that. If there's something that I'm not too sure about business-wise, generally I'll run it by my husband. He's owned businesses before. I'll talk to some other people periodically about it. Um, there's Mostly it's in my head. I am very much an in-my-head person. I also know when you started out, sorry, I'm pulling back these things oh, from like, a, I remember okay. in 20, whatever, we 10 yeah. when we met, um, you were working with SCORE. 
SBA. Oh, I still work with SCORE. Yeah. I love those guys. Those guys are great. There's one guy who I'm working with, and he, for years, had been an advisor to small business, um, particularly food businesses, and his sons still continue to do that. So when I think I'm kind of going in like a wacky direction, or I don't understand like how things are done in the wholesale world, I contact him, and he's really great. Within 24 hours, he either sends me an email or I meet with him. Um, I've had another guy who's a score advisor in finance, and he knows all those guys, guys and gals on, um, oh, shucks, it's a show that's like about, uh, I don't know, it's some sort of show where people present their ideas and these investors come and they say, you know, they they want to invest in it or not and all the not, rest of that. Not Shark Tank. Shark Tank. Oh, it is Shark So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you know how <laughs> I know, much I, I watched that show. I thought it must be Shark I mean, maybe. You know. Yeah. And he knows those people. I mean, personally. And he goes, yeah, they really are like that. Right. <laughs> so he's really good about helping with financial stuff. And one of the things I've always been good at, and maybe, you know, there's um, maybe too good at, at looking at numbers, is I can tell you by piece what the profitability is, whether it's a mini, it's a full size, it's a bar, it's the popcorn, labor included, not labor included, what the packaging is on an average basis, how much my costs are per package. Because so, you have like a spreadsheet? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, my spreadsheet basically has all my, um, so it's an Excel spreadsheet and every tab has a recipe in it. There's another tab in there that lists all my ingredients by pricing and when I last priced them out. And then they cross-reference each other. And then I have another one that takes all of those things and puts them together. So when I put together my baskets, I know if I use like two blood orange and a raspberry, a strawberry, I'm not going to make money. So I need to do dark chocolate in something because that's a lower cost to, to compensate for the raspberry. So I know to the uh, to the nth degree what it is. And my financial guy loves that. He's like, most oh, people, yeah, he's like, <laughs> most people don't even know it. And I'm like, oh no, this is what this is. And this is what that is. And you created that spreadsheet yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I have a similar spreadsheet that, um, yeah. that somebody helped me with, but yes, nice. I have everything, all the dates for all the ingredients and just plug them in when a new you know, price comes up. So for uh, your coloring, um, since you do so much beautiful paint work and stuff, do you, do you use like gel coloring or dry powders or? So there's a couple different forms. Um, there's some that are pre-made. And so there's two groups that, that make it. It's pure color is one and chef rubber is another. And so chef rubber has both... Um, let's say artificial color as well as natural color. And then pure color is only natural color. So there's certain colors that are really tough to get in natural color. Blue is almost impossible to get. So I'm always going to use an artificial color and I use that with a whiskey, the traditional color for my whiskey. Um, and then I'll talk in a second if I remember um, about why I color things a certain way. But um, so I purchase, sometimes I will purchase the powder and then I will blend it into the cocoa butter color that's made. A lot of times I will take the cocoa butter colors and I will blend them. I will blend pure color into chef rubber and vice versa. I'll use one color for a top color and then I'll back it with another color. So the natural colors tend to be more translucent. And a lot of times I'm looking for something that's not translucent, that's really eye-popping. The best way to do that is to mix a white in with it. But you have to be careful with that because otherwise it can turn like red into pink and you might not want that. Oh, there's a tip. Uh, 
Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so what you can do is you can do the red and then you can put the second color, the color that's behind it, you can make that white and that will pop the red because otherwise it's going to, if you talk to people who do a lot of pure uh, pure color like portraiture and what that if you take three layers of paint and the top layer is the same and you do you take the the two bottom layers and you change those and you do kind of a grid you can actually see that the top layer because of the way that the light works and your eye works with the light is that it is actually changed so i do the same with my chocolates top layer is one, and then I have to decide on a backing layer so that it pops. Um, even if it looks like it's very, very opaque, I will oftentimes put a back layer in there just to make sure that it, it stands out or it does what I want it to do. That's so cool. I know. <laughs> I didn't know. I see, I don't work with color or anything like molds or tempered chocolate that way. And it's- I've been watching a lot of that's a great show i love that show i mean because i i saw them using the molds and they were coloring on it and they were doing exactly that they paint the mold and then they back it with whiter brown i mean you know chocolate darker white and so i just Hmm. i was just curious and like it's because there's so vibrant colors out there now right and you're right yeah so if you mix with white with red you did get pink, yeah. yeah. Yeah, when did that become a fashion, do you know? The color? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's been around a lot longer than I've been around um, in chocolate because I've seen it on other people's work. Yes. So I, I'm i not sure. Yeah, I really don't, I don't know. know either. <laughs> okay. But I, I went to molds because it's just easier. It's a standard size every time I pull it out. And that was the problem I was having with using a guitar and cutting you know, cutting things, they never really seemed to work out. And then the dipping meant that there was a foot. And a lot of times what I would do, so here's a trick for somebody that wants to do something different. Get yourself some shelf plastic because, you know, like, or it's got to be an SF. But when you're putting your dipped item down, put it so that it's down on that ridged look. And then that way, when you finish with it, you flip it upside down and now that's your hop. So you don't have a foot that you need to cut. Now it's become an art piece. Oh, I see. And then I've also done color on those kind of things. So now it's ridged in color. So when you flip it over, but still, you know, the, the bottom of it, which is the top to most people, um, it can still be different sizes. And it's just annoying to me when I'm putting boxes together. So I don't do it. Um, annoyance is something that I avoid at all possible. <laughs> so I, I will go back since I remembered about color. Yeah. Um, I color code things. And that's one of the reasons I got into to chocolate early on. So we have some chocolate that I brought today from other people. And some of it has some very pretty rooibosh um, tea sprinkled on top is a designator of what it is. And another has a pretty, it's a dark chocolate top with a stripe of milk chocolate across indicating it's a chai square. So that's how they uh, they develop their pattern of basically recognition, how they can look at a tray and know instantly what everything is. Do you, um, when you sell your chocolates in a box, do you have a flavor map? Absolutely. Yeah. We've always have it It, from the beginning. It's always been on the bottom of the box. Okay. So So that's how people, and then in your mind, you say like blue is always whiskey for you. And so then once people know what your color coding is. Yeah. Then they can figure it out. Okay. And the reason blue whiskey is blue is that the, a lot of times I will take the label of the bottle as incentive because I do so much in terms of recipe 
uh, creation. And so if the label on the bottle is like red, white, and blue, which was the first bottle I ever used, then I already had white, which was an almond butter crunch. And then I had a red, which was raspberry. So it left blue. And so if I'm changing things, so for instance, I'm working with this one distiller and they will oftentimes give me three or four whiskeys. So they now know that anything with blue is whiskey. So it's going to be a different whiskey. There's different patterns. There's different sure. colors with it. Um, and there's one that's an exception because it's uh, it's a Nika from Japan and it's pink and brown on the label. And I always thought it would look weird to have pink and blue, but I will figure out some way to get that blue in there in the future. So that's that color. Rum tends to be red because the original bottle had a red on the label. So for me, there's certain things and it just makes it easier for me to then go and it's like, okay, I got five rums. I know I need to have red in each one. It can't look like raspberry and it can't look like cherry. So this is what I'm going to do for it. When you started out, did you know that you were going to um, be doing, do you do a lot with alcohol? When you started out, did you know that you were going to be doing that? No. So what happened with that is my husband and I split events one night. And so he went to a Yelp event at one of the museums and I had done a whiskey. So this is how how you ask about how I develop recipes and such. My husband and I were at an event and he took one of my vanilla and he dropped it in a glass of four roses whiskey. And then he pulled it out and he ate it and he goes, you know, you really should make a whiskey caramel. So that's how that got started. So I made a whiskey caramel. He brings it to this museum event about a year later or so. This woman walks up. She's showcasing. She's a distiller's rep. She's showcasing. She goes, I'd like to talk to your wife because we want to be able to showcase our our different products, but you cannot sample just out of a bottle. You have to have certain licenses. And so she'd worked with somebody who made ice cream, but there's a problem in itself keeping it cold. So she goes, but I'd like to see what she could do with chocolate. Well, the funny part is I actually don't drink a lot of hard liquor. I just oh. don't like the taste of it. Yeah. I'm, so, but what I'll do is I can have a few grams of it and I know what that's supposed to taste like now. Because to me now, the liquor isn't liquor, it's now an ingredient. So now I'm sussing out what that ingredient component tastes like. And so... I started working with her and the funny part was that she brought all of her all this booze and she's like, do you want to try this out? Or the, I'm like, you know, I actually don't drink a lot. Why don't you drink it and tell me what you want to work with? She goes, I don't eat a lot of chocolate. Oh. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, so I started working with her. This is almost like five years ago. So now actually I drink a little more and she eats a lot more chocolate. <laughs> That's <laughs> one of those relationships. So if you were not making chocolate or jams or other things that you make right now, uh, what would you be doing? Writing mysteries. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> that was fast. Uh, I've been researching it and I sort of had a, a choice before I went into chocolate. I started researching it. So it's a series actually. And it starts in 1937, San Francisco. And it's a... So you're a writing detective. this now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, even if I'm not physically writing it, I think about the stories all the time and the characters. And 
It's about a, a woman who has married somebody in the Navy and she's moved over to San Francisco from the Central Valley area. And so she's moved in with his um, aunt and uncle who raised him and his brother. And so it's sort of like her adventures learning a little bit of San Francisco at the time and bringing her thoughts to it. And then at some point, she's going to go back to the Valley because a lot of people don't understand that there were things that happened during those times that people don't talk about anymore. So people talk about night Riders as if they were in the South, but they weren't. They were in the Valley and things like that. So um, the Rider. So when the Japanese were interned and before then, they were basically a kind of a version of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, nice to know that Californians were also extremely racist at that time. <laughs> but, um, but at any rate, so it takes her 30. So every year would be another book, 37 through 45. And so, you, you, have thought you, about this. Have you published? Yeah. You haven't published? No, no, I'm a pre-published author, as they like to call it. So, I do my research, and and actually, the goal is then to to go and to do this. Um, you have to be really careful on the historical because people are really picky about it, and understandably so. So, there's um, there's like a, I've got a library of pre-World War II and World War II books, anything from military uh, that my brother likes to read, and then because her husband's in the Navy. So, you know, you want to have that whole thing going on. Um, there's an episode that I've sort of pre-planned a couple of the books, just like in terms of general. And the idea is 1941, December 5th, She's the book ends and she's pregnant and she's basically thrown down a stairs and she's in the hospital and she finds out about the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's where her husband is. So that takes you to the next book oh. um, kind of thing. So so at any rate, yeah. That's not giving the, away the ending? <laughs> no, the, the ending is 45 and I actually, I do know the exact ending. I know the last chapter of that book. And so it, you know, again, like I, I walk into a space and I see how I can use it at the end point. Point, this whole series, I know how it's leading up to that end point. And I know where people are going and I know where um, where characters are going to leave the story and then come back into the story. So not every book is completely ribbon, written, but, um, but I do have enough of an understanding so that I know where I want them to be and what I want them to be doing at certain times. So is, is your whole life like this? Have you always seen the end points for every part of your life? There's, I'm very goal oriented. So not everything. I mean, I, I think I sort of know where I'm going to go at the very, very end. But, um, but yeah, it's, I'm just, I'm goal driven. I don't do really well when it's like, okay, there's no goal. It's like, uh, uh, what do I do now? Um, whenever I, so when that last business basically failed and I'm open about that, um, a lot of people would say like, oh, who can I work for? And my first, my only thought was like, oh, what business do I start? So, you know, there's just certain things that everybody does in their own life, whether they know it's a pattern or not. And I'm pretty cognizant of my patterns. Mm-hmm. You were an entrepreneur at the beginning? On all- I started selling stationary door to door when I was ah, 10. There we go. Yeah. My mother never gave um, allowances. So she was like, you are in this family, you wash dishes. You participate. I don't give you money for that. You have to do something, you know, extraordinary. And that wasn't mowing the lawn. That was part of being part of a family. So in order for me to get money, I had to sell stationery door to door. I had 10, 10 years old. I'm walking around with my little portfolio of stuff. Where the neighbors are you? knew. Where are I was you? in New York oh. on Long Island. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the neighbors knew me and they knew what I was doing. My mother, I'm sure, had primed them already. You know, like, my, you know, so Lisa's going to go around and she's going to be selling stationary door to door. Please buy you know, some for please, her. Yeah, please do. <laughs> a little bit. So, yeah. And then I got my first job in a library when I was 15. And I got my first paycheck. It was $62.50. And I brought it to them and I said, I think something's wrong. And they're like, what, you think it's more? And I said, no, I think it's too much. <laughs> Didn't you overpay me? Oh my goodness. I said, oh. And they're like, no, really, this is what you get paid. So but, how did you mm-hmm. come out to California? Oh, so let's see. I wanted a place. So so my history, um, I went to Northwestern in Chicago. Um, I never did year, junior year abroad. So there was a, a couple that were French and they worked for an American, he worked for an American bank called First Bank Chicago. And they were moved to England and they were looking for a nanny. And so I auditioned for the nanny position and I got it and um, I moved to England. And then when I was in England, I did a a series of kind of exercises in what color is your parachute, which I still think is a great book. And so I did. So this is the eighties then. This is definitely the eighties. Graduated in 81. So I'm in England in 82. And so anyway, I did what color is your parachute? And I tried to figure out a way to mix kind of, common sense and money with art. So I had different ideas. And one of the ideas was architecture. So I, I looked at different architecture schools and used, and Cal had an architecture program. They still do. And so the others were all private. So if I moved to California and I became a resident, then my costs would go down. So I moved to San Francisco and I lived with the family for two years. And then I took a job in the architectural industry as a secretary um, it is also the reason why I still to this day cannot make coffee because when I first moved there, the guy goes, the girl makes coffee. And I decided I wasn't going to be the girl who made coffee. So they had an automatic coffee maker and I put two cups of water and two coffee cups of grounds in and let it go down. And this is how I make coffee. Oh, yeah. If you want coffee from me, this is what you're going to get. Exactly. So <laughs> I had to drink that entire cup. And the guy who said the girl makes coffee said, is this how you make coffee? And I said, yeah, it's good, isn't it? And he goes, I'll make coffee from now on. Uh, As a result, to this day, I still don't know how to make coffee. <laughs> My husband, if we need to make coffee, insists that he makes coffee okay. because I made him coffee once and he was like, I can drink straw coffee, but what the hell is this? Okay. <laughs> like, that's, that's how I make coffee. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it supposed to be like a cup or a cup? And he's it's like, ratio no. <laughs> I take it you don't have a coffee flavored uh, chocolate then. Oh, I do. I do. Using the same it's, it's, strength. It's sort, of, sort of similar. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, I was thinking of that. It's funny that you mentioned coffee. So one of my favorite combinations is coffee and hazelnut. And I have used it in all sorts of ways. I'm using it in all sorts of ways today. But I was trying to think of, let's see, if I made a, a coffee toffee or if I made it like a chewy caramel with coffee and then I embedded it into a ganache with a coffee. And then, so it's like, no, I already have coffee. Stop thinking of coffee. But yeah. So if you do a milk chocolate or a white chocolate yeah, coffee exactly. and then you can call it a latte and then you, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you actually relax? I do. I do. But you know, it's funny because for me, relaxing is is still all about creativity. And and I get bored really easily. I have to say that's it, my brother will come up and visit us every once in a while. And he's like, could you sit down? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm doing this and that. And he looks at my husband. He's, you know, 
are you? What? <laughs> My husband's like, yeah, no, that's what she does. You should She's eat happy. the coffee she drinks. <laughs> yeah, except I don't drink any coffee now. Oh, boy. Yeah, I stopped drinking coffee years ago. She does. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're wired. Chocolate. That's it. That's yeah, why. That's the substitute. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but so anyway, so I ended up in California because of the whole architecture thing. So things circle around in my life. Yeah. So where can we find your products? www.cocotootie.com. Okay. Well, thank you, Elise. Of thank Coco you. Tootie. Thank you. We thank you. for being here. Uh, taking time to talk with us absolutely i'm hoping you're going to come up and visit my kitchen absolutely you definitely will we we got to see the shotgun kitchen it's oh yeah at least fascinating to us yeah, absolutely <laughs> thank you for listening to let us wrap with christine and tammy thank you to our editor and producer jason anthony guy if you like our show tell a friend ask them to subscribe we're on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts take it away elise Until next time, that's a wrap.